Indeed, I thank you for remaining standing. I noticed in the liturgy that the message is indicated to come from Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10. It has been narrowed down some. (laughs) So take up your word, if you have it with you there, and turn to Galatians chapter 1. And the message will actually be focusing on verses 6 and 7 this morning. But for context, we'll begin at verse 1 and read through verse 9. Hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle, not of man, men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. As we gather now to hear the preaching of your word, we confess that we need your word, that we are weak and daily in need of your word, and that we also confess that we too easily misconstrue your word or add to it or take away from it and even neglect it. We therefore pray for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to attend to both the hearing and the preaching of your word. Open our ears that we may hear and our hearts that we may receive your word. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from your sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You have called us to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us and to rightly handle the word of truth. And what greater word of truth is there than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? It is that which we have heard and received and in which we stand. It is that by which we are saved. It is precious. It is powerful. Strengthen us now, O Lord, in the Gospel. Tear down any idols in our hearts that we cling to and which undermine the Gospel. Increase our boldness in the Gospel and our love for our neighbors that we might always be ready to give a defense and a testimony for the hope we have in Christ. And so it is in His mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
And as you are getting settled in your seats, I would like to bring to your attention a cruel hoax, a cruel hoax that some of us are familiar with. One that rears its ugly head from time to time. Perhaps hoax is not quite the right term. It may simply be a joke seeking to find humor in an unpleasant surprise. Or maybe more innocently, it is a sincere desire to bring diversity to the family dinner table. But mothers and grandmothers through the years have seized upon an opportunity to make an illegitimate substitution of one side item for another. It may be that the substitution is perceived to be forced by the practical limitations of the pantry and motivated by a noble striving for frugality. But I say to you without hesitation and with strong conviction of palate that no matter how much butter you add or how much gravy is available, and even though the outward appearance and texture may be very similar, mashed turnips are no substitute for mashed potatoes. Amen. I know that both vegetables grow underground and are often white in color, and both are healthy for us to eat, but I say to you, they are not the same. Turnips are not another potato. Now, this is probably too silly an illustration to bring to bear on such a serious and weighty matter as the gospel of our Lord and Savior but I want us to root deeply the truth that Paul is here proclaiming to the Galatian churches. And that is, when we begin with the gospel and add to it, or diminish something from it, when we place it on par with other religions, we don't end up with just a distorted gospel, but something completely different which is no gospel at all. Substituting mashed turnips for mashed potatoes at the annual family Thanksgiving table may lead to disappointment, but substituting another gospel, which is no gospel at all, for the true gospel, doesn't lead to disappointment. It is not an alternate Roman road, but a road that leads straight to hell. You see, the enemy is a master deceiver. He begins with the truth and twists it so that it is no longer the truth, but a lie. He is, after all, the father of lies. As we mentioned in the first message, Paul is so concerned about the Galatian church and so anxious to get to the core of this epistle that he forgoes his normal pleasantries and praises and polite salutations. The sense of urgency is palpable. And so in verse 6, he gets right to the point. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Some other translations render this verse, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is here writing with urgency and being very direct because he knew full well that this was a gross error that would lead the church into crisis and undermine the faith of the Christians in Galatia. 
Paul is astonished. Paul is amazed that the church is so quickly turning away and, and deserting Christ. Deserting the Gospel that they have received. And deserting, by the way, is a good translation. As the Greek word here was first used in a military context. The Galatians were betraying their allegiance to Christ and going over to the other side. And note that the verb here is in the present tense, meaning that they were in the process of deserting. Deserting the faith at that very moment. There was still time to stop the propagation of this error and bring needed correction, the needed instruction, the right doctrine of salvation to bear. And you can almost imagine Paul pacing back and forth as he composes this letter. He's received word of this threat entering the church and he wants to be present at each of the Galatian churches there. And he wants to look at them and say, Stop! Stop what you are doing! Don't you realize you are deserting the faith? The true faith? We went over this in painstaking detail and you heard and you believed and you believe the revelation of the glorious truth of the Gospel, and now you are being drawn away by a false Gospel. How can this be? Paul had likely just returned from one of the most successful missionary journeys, missionary trips in all of history. The Gospel was preached. Sinners were saved, both Jew and Gentile. <clears throat> Miracles were performed. Churches were planted. Which is why Paul was so astonished to hear that the Galatians were quickly turning away from the Gospel. It may remind us of that scene from Exodus 32. Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to commune with God and we read in verse 1, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up! Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And of course we remember what happens next, don't we? The incident with the golden calf. After being led out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, witnessing the visible presence of God going before them in a pillar of cloud, by day and a pillar of fire by night, passing through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea in safety and being delivered from the hands of the pursuing Egyptians, it takes less than 40 days for the people of Israel to give up on Moses and add a golden calf to the worship of God. At times, we are a people of such weak and fickle faith. In his short work, The Literature and History of New Testament Times, J. Gresham Mation summarizes the first ten verses of Galatians as, You are falling away from the gospel, and I am writing to stop you. That captures it succinctly. That captures Paul's Holy Spirit as he was giving this response to the church. The Galatian church was actively apostatizing. They were abandoning the good news about the cross and of the empty tomb. They were abandoning the good news of God's grace. Abandoning God's unmerited favor 
to unworthy and undeserving sinners, abandoning the liberty wherewith they had been set free, not clinging to the total comprehensive good news that Christ died for their sins, was buried and rose again the third day, all according to the Scriptures. In embracing another gospel, they were abandoning Him. That is God who had called them into the grace of Christ. This was a personal affront to and betrayal of their Creator. Paul continues and informs them that they were turning to another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. There be some that would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. There are always troublemakers, aren't there? Folks who desire power and influence, people whose prideful flesh can't yield to the gospel of grace. Those who desire special knowledge more than the special revelation of God. And the apostles knew that there would be wolves who would come in and desire this to steal the sheep, didn't they? Paul knew this. He was familiar with our Lord's words from Matthew 7, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many be there, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. And Paul would go on later to reiterate this warning in his farewell exhortation to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And of your own selves shall rise men, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Christ told His disciples that false prophets in sheep's clothing would come into the church. Paul told the elders of the church that from among them, men would arise speaking perverse things to draw people away. Have you ever stopped to think, that the most formidable and frequent threat to the gospel comes from within the church. This has been true historically, and it is true today. As we consider this truth in the context of this letter to the Galatians, one of the things we might wonder is, would we have been able to recognize the true gospel the pure gospel, if we were in their situation, would we? Remember now, they were new converts to the faith. They were hungry for greater knowledge of God and His ways, wanting to fulfill all that God required of them. And then, these smart, very religious men 
who were baptized and also proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God, arrive. They also were teaching that Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. They confessed the need to repent of sin and trust upon Christ to be saved. And all they wanted to do was take it a little bit further. Perhaps we would have seen them as Christian Jewish missionaries or, or teachers who came in to complete the teaching of Paul and to integrate the Christian church in Galatia more fully into the faith of Abraham by circumcision and bringing them under the law. As Philip Ryken imagines, these Judaizers wanted to add something to Paul's gospel of free grace. Yes, yes, what Paul teaches is fine, they said, as far as it goes. But we've been worshiping God a lot longer than you Gentiles. In fact, we've been keeping the law of Moses for over a thousand years. And you remember what Jesus said. He said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If you want the full gospel, you need to be circumcised in order to get it. This is what the Gentiles have always had to do to become a part of God's people. That's a persuasive argument. Nothing could have been more reasonable. The shepherds would have required a bold confidence in the gospel to refute these gainsayers. How would we have responded to the teaching of the Judaizers? That's probably a little too hypothetical for today. So let's bring the question into the present day. Are we able to clearly distinguish between true gospel and the false gospels in the modern day church? Are we sensitive to those minor deviations that lead over the course of time to great and grievous apostasy? Do we recognize the prosperity gospel that teaches that Jesus is the way to financial gain and blessing? Do we know the family values gospel when we hear it teach that Jesus is the way to a happy home? Or how about the gospel of self, where Jesus becomes the way to personal fulfillment? Or the gospel of morality, that assures us that Jesus is the way to become a good person. One of the things that makes these and other perversions of the gospel so dangerous and so appealing, at least at first, is that the benefits seem so good and so right. There are even verses taken out of context that support these views. What could be wrong with financial security? A happy home well-behaved children, or the prevalence of nice people doing nice things. As good as these things are, they are not the gospel. They are not good news in and of themselves. When we embrace a false gospel, the pursuit and object of our faith become those things, be they health, wealth, or happiness. Raymond Ortland Jr., in his book, A Passion for God, conducted a bit of a thought experiment and tried to imagine the church without the gospel. 
He writes, what might our evangelicalism without the evangel look like? We would have to replace the centrality of the gospel with something else, naturally. So what might take the place of the gospel in our sermons, in Sunday school classes, in home Bible studies, and above all, in our hearts? Ortland lists a few possibilities of what might replace the centrality of the gospel. Now remember, these are without the gospel. These replace the gospel. A passionate devotion to pro-life cause. A confident manipulation of modern managerial techniques. A drive toward church growth. A deep concern for the institution of the family. A sympathetic, empathetic, thickly honeyed cultivation of interpersonal relationships or community. A determination to take America back to its Christian roots through political power. A warm affirmation of self-esteem, or just a few he listed. And we could keep adding to that list with those emergent issues of the day. We might add a strong support in defense of biblical marriage. A teaching ministry on biology and gender identity, and so on. And as we consider that list, we see many good things that look good and right and even biblical. But remember, these are things that might rise up and take the place of the gospel. And sadly, in many ways, it looks very much like large segments of the church today. This is a reminder that we have to be diligent at keeping the gospel at the center for it is always in danger from within, either by negligence or from false teachers. In his lectures on Galatians, Luther warns that there is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith and may substitute for the doctrine of works and of human traditions. It is very necessary, therefore, that this doctrine of faith be continually read and heard in public, no matter how well it may be known or how carefully learned, the devil, our adversary, who prowls around and seeks to devour us, is not dead. Our flesh also goes on living. Besides, temptations of every, every sort attack and oppress us from every side. Therefore, this doctrine can never be discussed and taught enough. If it is lost and perishes, the whole knowledge of truth, life, and salvation is lost and perishes at the same time. But if it flourishes, everything good flourishes. Religion, true worship, the glory of God, the right knowledge of all things, and social conditions. What a quote. To that I can only add a hearty amen. But now, for the second part of this message, let's turn our attention to some, some common, pervasive false gospels that have wormed their way into the church today. This is certainly not a comprehensive list, but as we look at this list, our objective is to more finely tune our false gospel detectors, to look inward, to see, are we subject to this? Have we been pursuing any of these things? 
And so with that, let us just consider four common Gospels that are not another Gospel. Number one, the Gospel of Jesus and. We must beware of that little three-letter word, and. This is, this is the very same error that Paul was addressing with the Galatian churches and the influence of the Judaizers. They were promoting the Gospel and the works of the law as the basis of justification. And why did they do this? Why was this such a temptation for them 2,000 years ago? And why is it such a temptation and danger to us today? It is because our faith is weak and we don't believe. We don't trust that God who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is because we are not satisfied with seeing the work of God through the eyes of faith. We want to see it outwardly in something we do. This is legalism. This is trusting not in the finished work of Christ, but in something we do for our salvation. And it doesn't work. It is futility. And we find it everywhere we look. Baptized and institutionalized. It is what the natural man wants. I remember being in high school and coming under the influence of the Mormons. Testimony time. I had some good friends who were Mormon. There was a lot to admire and desire when I considered their lifestyle. The families appeared to be strong and biblical. Dad led the family in worship. Mom kept the home and it was always beautiful. There were many children. Always dressed neatly and always smiling. They didn't use foul language or smoke or drink, and they were ready to serve on the school board or as scoutmasters. It was really quite beautiful. I had friends, good friends, who were Mormons, and that was part of what got me to investigate. And as I investigated further, it became clear that there was a false gospel behind the facade. It was a gospel based on the Holy Scriptures and three other books, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. It was a gospel based on God's special revelation and the special knowledge and revelation of Joseph Smith. It was a gospel based not on Jesus as God, but, but a Jesus that was one of many gods of many worlds. It was a gospel of very little grace and much law-keeping. But we don't have to just be sensitive to the gross errors we find in Mormonism. We can also find it in more subtle errors. Seemingly minor deviations that can cause us to take our eyes off Christ and place our trust in something else. Believe in Jesus and be baptized in the waters of this church. Trust in Jesus and the infallible interpretation of some modern day prophet. Believe in Jesus and have financial prosperity. Place your faith in Jesus and in your moral behavior, your particular dress, your Sabbath observance from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. 
Believe in the gospel and know that the most important thing that should motivate our lives is the sure knowledge that this is the last generation before the rapture. Believe the gospel and don't eat this and don't touch that. And it goes on and on. This in no way denies the fact that Scripture is replete with doctrine and application, indicatives and imperatives, and instruction on how to lead a godly life. The Scripture teaches us who God is and what He requires of us. But the good news is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When there was no strength in us, when there was nothing good in us, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. <coughs> we were justified by the shedding of His blood so that, so that we who place our faith in Him are saved from the wrath due our sins. And there is nothing, not one thing we can add to that. There is no righteousness or good works that we can bring before God and purchase our salvation. And when we try, it is evidence that the object of our faith is not Jesus, but that other thing. So that we have added to the Gospel, making it not another. For there is no other Gospel. And number two, let's consider a Gospel that denies original sin. Now, maybe you never thought of the gospel and original sin in this particular way. After all, doesn't everybody believe in original sin? I mean, we could go across town and ask our Baptist brothers, or our Church of Christ brothers, or our Methodist brothers, and every one of them would acknowledge the original sin of Adam. But I'm afraid that many of our friends in those churches, and maybe even some in this church here this morning, would begin to get uncomfortable if we leaned in to the doctrine of original sin just a little bit more. What if we ask our friend about that precious little baby they are holding? Do they really know that precious child whom they rightly love was conceived and born in iniquity and possessed in their nature the sin of Adam and were apart from the saving grace of the gospel, subject to the wrath of God for that sin. Doesn't the very language we use about children reveal our struggles with this doctrine? How often have we used or heard the phrase, innocent little child? But Romans 5.12 clearly tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. To deny original sin is to begin down the path of the Pelagian heresy. Pelagius denied original sin and stressed the essential goodness of man, and his doctrine was informed and motivated out of a concern for the rampant immorality he saw all around him. Pelagius denied original sin and the imputation of Adam's sin to all mankind. But the consequence of this denial was also a denial of total depravity and substitutionary atonement 
and much more. Since Pelagius embraced an essential goodness in man, Adam becomes for him merely a bad example. And Jesus provides for us the good example to live by. Pelagianism teaches that human beings are born in a state of innocence with a nature that is as pure as that which Adam was given at creation. As a result of his basic assumption, Pelagius taught that man has an unimpaired moral ability to choose that which is spiritually good and possesses the free will, ability, and capacity to do that which is spiritually good. This resulted in a gospel of salvation based on human works. Man could choose to follow the precepts of God and then follow those precepts because he had the power within himself to do so. But that teaching is contrary to the plain truth of Scripture. Scripture teaches that Adam's sin is imputed to us. It is conveyed to all of Adam's posterity, descending from him through ordinary generation, including to us through our parents, but it is not the sin of our parents in view here. It is the sin of Adam as our federal head that is in view in original sin. If we follow Paul's logic here in Romans 5, down to verse 18, he concludes, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience will many be made righteous. Brothers and sisters, if you cannot have participation in imputed, you cannot have in participation in imputed righteousness of Christ if you do not participate in the imputed unrighteousness of Adam. We cannot deny the one and proclaim the other, at least not in truth. They both rise or fall together. What then are some of the errors that propagate from a denial? of the doctrine of original sin. Where there is a denial of original sin, you will find a strong embrace of a doctrine of an age of accountability. Isn't it amazing how fiercely we can cling to this concept? We so want to view our children as innocent, don't we? And I remember just pretty clearly years ago, we had uh, Larry and Gian and the family up visiting. I think we were in, in Kyle and Mariah's house. We were in the living room there, and Elisha was crawling or a toddler. And Elisha was, <clears throat> he was in a rare fit. He was angry. He was fighting. And Gian, just as calmly as you please, said, and some think they're born innocent. And uh, thank you <laughs> for that illustration. That was so powerful. What else? We don't read any headlines these days that indicate someone hates God and denies the created order and His revealed will and is in rebellion, having given themselves over to all manner of perversions. Would like to see that headline. 
Rather, we see vitriolic declarations or self-expression of self-expression and feverish scientific research to try and find genetic justification for the rightness of these perversions. And then we need to look at the subject of guilt. If we don't understand guilt, if we are not guilty, we don't need a Savior. If we trust in the Gospel and are looking to Christ and trusting in His atonement for our sins and pleading His imputed righteousness, we need to acknowledge the imputed sin in Adam and our own guilt and daily repent and believe the Gospel. Which brings us to number three. A Gospel that denies that a good God would not send anyone to hell. Have you ever heard that one? I know those of you who have shared the Gospel have got to have heard this in one form or another. Beware anyone that preaches there is no hell or that a good God would not send anyone there. And believe it or not, this is a common perspective and a common teaching within the church. The Scriptures are so selectively preached in some churches that there are many within their walls that don't even know that Jesus spoke more of hell than He did of heaven. Go out into the streets and engage a non-believer, and particularly a convinced unbeliever, and you will likely be confronted by a perspective of God as a hateful, vengeful, capricious monster who only wants to send people to hell. But the sad thing is, if you go to some churches and preach Matthew 13, or 25, or Luke 16, or Mark 9, you run the risk of hearing from a little old man who has sat in the pew all his life who tells you that if that is the God of the Bible, he wants nothing to do with him. When we don't embrace the biblical doctrine of hell, we have an anemic understanding of God's holiness and holiness in general. And we don't understand justice. We reveal that we are not concerned with the glory of God or His righteousness. But friends, Scripture is not a salad bar. We don't get to pick and choose the pleasant things and reject those things which offend our sensibilities. When we do that, we haven't embraced a weakened gospel, but another gospel altogether, which is not another. I remember clearly one one practical outworking of this error. <clears throat> Many years ago, Mary, Susan, and I were in an adult Sunday school class being taught by our associate pastor. He was a friendly and likable young man from South Africa and brought what to our ears was an interesting accent as he spoke. I don't remember what we were studying, but I do remember an illustration that he used. And as it turns out, it's an all-too-common illustration that those within the church embrace as portraying a truth, which is no truth but a lie. He said we should picture a mountain with God at the top. You've heard this. You know where I'm going. And along that mountain are many roads winding up the mountain, all leading to God. They take different paths, but they ultimately lead to God. And I think behind this horrible illustration, 
is a denial of the doctrine of hell. He didn't want to go so far as to say that the Muslim or the Buddhist or the Mormon were embracing a demonic lie because he didn't believe a good God would send anyone to hell. And sadly, he probably got this doctrine in seminary. We must pursue a right understanding of the Gospel and of the God of Scripture so that we can say along with James Montgomery Boyce, God's judgments in the end will be so absolutely perfect that the damned will agree with the rightness of their damnation. That is how good God actually is. And our final and fourth illustration here is, is of a false gospel. is a gospel that teaches that it is the sins of the flesh that condemn, and therefore salvation is found in the quitting of sins. Sadly, there are many in our churches today that are preaching reformation rather than salvation. And by reformation, I don't mean the kind of reformation we know from Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. I am speaking of those who are less concerned with communicating the cross of Christ than they are with cleaning up the congregation within the church. And I think this is yet another natural impulse we have. We want to be good, to look good, and to present a good testimony to our neighbor. But when this doesn't flow from the work of the Spirit in us, in our daily living in the Gospel, our trust is easily directed to the performance of those things and to particular applications. I remember many years ago having a good, <clears throat> a good conversation with my brother. He was, I believe, living with us at the time, and, and we were out in the garden picking corn or beans or tomatoes or something, and, and we were talking about faith, and I was sharing the gospel and talking about the church, and his response was probably like uh, the responses many of you have heard with family members or when sharing the gospel. He said, I am not good enough to go to church. I have sinned too much. Let that sink in. Have you heard that before? Have you felt that before? How many people are convinced that they have to get cleaned up in order to come to Jesus, in order to believe the Gospel? The story is told about the evangelist that comes to town and sets up his tent. <clears throat> the word gets out that he is a great preacher and the town folk all come to hear him preach. The first night he preaches about the sin of dancing and how it tempts in the flesh and many are ready to give up dancing. The second night, he preaches against drinking liquor. He's a great liquor fighter. And the town folk are ready to shut down the liquor store and close all the bars. The third night, he preaches against the worldliness of the movies, and everyone is convicted to no longer patronize the local theater. You see, he's a great reformer. He's gotten them to reform their ways. And in so doing, they have become like the Pharisees, who clean up the cup on the outside, but who are inwardly still full of extortion and self-indulgence. The town folk have been reformed, but they are not transformed. 
They have sat under and taking, taken heed to another gospel, which is no gospel at all. How many ways <clears throat> and how many conversations have we had that revealed this pharisaical spirit in us? <clears throat> Do you think it's okay for us to buy a lottery ticket? What if Pastor finds out we went to this R-rated movie? Pastor, should my dress go down to the ankle? Or is the knee good enough? Is it a sin to go have supper at Cracker Barrel on Sunday? Should I tithe on my gross or my net? These aren't bad questions. But what is at the heart of those questions so many times? Now, giving the benefit of the doubt, this is a, a Christian growing in sanctification, but sometimes these things are what we're actually trying to satisfy. Are we more interested in living a reformed life or a transformed life? Can we fully embrace the exhortation from Rick, uh, Richard Baxter to desire a thousand times more to be godly than to appear so? and to seem so. Dear brothers and sisters, there is no other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ which we receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we need it every day. Luther wrote that he must listen to the gospel because it tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. <clears throat> But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together. And made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that we should walk in them. There it is. Even the faith that we exercise is a free gift from God. Those good works, we were created in Christ Jesus for those. And it is in Jesus that we daily walk in them. And we do so for His glory alone. This is the true gospel. And there is no other gospel. Our merciful and glorious Father in heaven, <clears throat> we, your church, are so very thankful for the glory of the gospel and for the truth of your word. 
You have revealed to us how quickly we are prone to take the pure truth of the gospel and add to it or take away from it. Lord, protect us from these errors. Make our testimony of Christ and the gospel true. Keep us from worldly thinking, from legalism, from a libertine spirit, and any other thing or thought that would distort the gospel in our lives. Draw us together in the unity of the Spirit and grant us the discernment to put off all the sources of division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which we have received in Jesus Christ. For it is in His all-powerful name we pray. Amen.